0: Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Father, we give you praise today. This truly is the time and the calendar of the church everywhere in the world where we reflect and we talk about the three days that absolutely changed everything, absolutely changed planet Earth. Father, I pray for every pastor in this city of London today. Right now, I pray, Father, we pray that your life would flood through every word that they speak. We pray, Father, around this great city, for that matter, around this great nation, that today hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people give their life to Jesus Christ, that they truly move into the kingdom of God and receive the fullness of what the grace of Jesus has brought to this planet. In Jesus' name, Father, we give you praise. We give you so much thanks. And I pray that you'd help me, Father, this morning as I go through some of these things here. I just pray, Father, that you would accomplish your will. And I really do pray, Spirit of the living God, you're the only one who can actually touch a heart, actually change a life. And many of us here, Father, have indeed truly had our entire lives absolutely, eternally changed just by beginning with that first step of faith and daring to believe, and choosing to believe on Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So I give you thanks today, Father, in spirit again of the living God. I thank you that you're the only true teacher of the church. And I pray that you would paint a picture afresh upon our hearts and minds of just what we have in our possession now through the death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You know, Easter is a—it's difficult for me sometimes. Um, on Friday, we were up at the barn, and I watched, and they had all these old movies on television. I watched, I don't know if you remember, one of the early movies about Jesus was called The Greatest Story of All Time. A film and they had that on. I watched that entire film where this guy named Max Van Sydow played Jesus. Then they had King of Kings on with where uh, Jeffrey Hunter played Jesus, and then they had Ben Hur, the original Ben Hur, and of course it finishes at the end with the with the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, I'm one who simply I love to see the gospel portrayed in drama. I do. I, I this is why I love so much our music. And uh, I love it when our people do skits and what have you. Because if anything has changed my life, it's, again, it's actually having the revelation of the, of, of the crucifixion of Christ. And I started to watch, again, some of the, just the last, you know, how there's, you know, we all remember the movie, the Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And uh, I just started to watch just the last part of it. There's one particular video, and we're gonna show a partial video uh, when I finish this morning. But uh, I was watching the video where it starts, you know, with Jesus being flogged, with him being whipped. And Julie came in and sat with me for a moment, and she just said, I can't watch this. You know, I just can't watch it. It's too bloody. It's too horrible. And I said, I, I know I understand. I said, I don't really want to show that. But I said, somehow, some way, you know, we as believers you have to, you, you really need to continually remind yourself of the depth of the sacrifice and the suffering that this man went through. That it's not just a storybook. D- does anybody hear me? Yes. This isn't just a storybook. I mean, you think about all, you know, the incredible theologians and the way they communicate, but like even as a uh, uh, Chris was talking about the tomb being empty. And I, I love the fact, uh, one of the speakers I used to listen to, he talks about the fact, you know, think about the, the the 11 disciples after Jesus is raised from the dead, how they begin to live their lives so strongly, proclaiming this truth, proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, proclaiming the fact that he died for your sin, he died to take upon his own body the very nature of sin. He died and took all this upon his body so that we could be free from the law and walk upright before him. Uh, all of this truth, he did all that. And think about the fact that these 11 disciples, they all wound up, remember, being martyred, being horribly put to death themselves. And like this one guy, he said, ask yourself a question. If the body of Jesus was stolen, if they hadn't seen him raised from the dead, how could 11 men die? Why would 11 men give their lives up? In so many cases, they were horrifically martyred. Why would you die for a lie? Do you hear what I'm saying? Why would you... If you knew that something was untrue, if you knew that it was untrue, that it was all made up, why would 11 men who historians, Roman historians, Philo, Philo, however you want to pronounce it, P-H-I-L-O, who was a Jewish historian at the time of Jesus' life and death, he wrote, all of these people, people, secular people wrote about his death and resurrection and wrote about these 11 men who went everywhere preaching this truth and how they died for it. I'm just trying to say think about that. You wouldn't I wouldn't die for something if on the inside I knew it was fake. You know what I mean? This really happened. The world is, you know, I'm not even going to tell you the name is Julie and I watched this uh, thing about designers in Los Angeles the other day. And it was so ungodly it was so secular, it was, it was so, I mean, especially, I don't know, being from Southern California, it just the depth of the deception on the lives of people and what they accept as it's okay to live, and a lot of it was about, you know, the, the very, very deep end of the gay lifestyle, uh, but just in other areas as well, just the absolute depravity of man. And, you know, you, you I couldn't even, wa- I just watched it, we wound up, I didn't, i tell a lie. We watched the whole thing, but I just escaped getting so sick to my stomach and grieved because of the absolute massive, I mean, massive deception that's out there. And why, God wants us to really go back over and over again. That's what the communion table is all about, to go back again and again and call him to remembrance. This is my body. This my body was broken for you. You know, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Anyhow, so the crucifixion is not something that no people like to consider, look at, or whatever, but we're going to look at it just for a short while this morning. I have a, an article from a woman who's a, a well, let me just read what it said. Well, actually, first, I want you to turn to one of the verses. Let me turn to Luke chapter 22, if you would, uh, when Jesus goes into the garden. And at the end, we'll, we'll go to Isaiah as well to look at some classic scripture there. But in Luke chapter 22, this is when he goes in the garden. And I just want to, as we begin to look at this story of Easter, the story of what the sufferings of Christ... I mean, hallelujah, this is when we're here to celebrate his resurrection. But like I said, I, I, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I cannot, with hand on heart, not talk about the severity of his suffering. Because again, that's what your salvation is based upon, is actually understanding. I guarantee you, you will be much, you'll get free much quicker from the things that bind you if you actually look consider and begin to comprehend what he went through and when you, when it actually hits you this man died for you you know no greater love is there than a man lay down his own life for his friends and again you got to take it personal i take it really personal and i'm not trying to sound <laughs> super spiritual but i mean i know what he saved me out from you've all heard my testimony blood and guts the penitentiary, blah, 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 blah. But I take it real seriously what he saved me out of. And uh, I I have to keep going back because all too quickly, if you're not careful, we begin to live just in, as it were, the, I don't know, the happy land of Christianity. (laughs) You know what I'm trying to say? And I love, you all know, Rod loves happy. Rod loves joy. Rod loves all this. But, but there's not, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't think on this cross and think on what he went through. Anyhow, in Luke 22 40, it says, this is the Amplified Bible, Luke 22:40 40. Um, it says, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not at all enter into temptation. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing. Now, you got to think about this. He's 33, about 33 and a half years old. And remember the verse I quote off in the very last verse of the book of John, where the apostle John said, Had we written, had we written all the things that we'd witnessed, all the miracles, Had we written them down, I do not suppose that the world itself would be able to contain the volumes therein. In other words, so much happened. We only get the tip of the iceberg, I always say, in these four Gospels. But so much took place. Jesus went through so much. It says, and he, he comes into the garden, in verse 42, it says, saying, Father, if you're willing, Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but always yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him in spirit. Verse 44 says, And being in an agony of mind, he prayed all the more earnestly and intently, and his sweat became like great clots of blood dropping down upon the ground. Now we're just going to stop there for a moment, because I want you to comprehend, even from the beginning... The Greek word there is this word agonizomai, where we get the word agonize. We're going to read about it in the PowerPoint that we're going to do in just a moment from this biologist and chemist. chemist. Science knows, medical people know that there can be such a stress. People can, like in combat situations when bullets are flying and people are dying right next to you, you can... Physically, you know, have so much stress. Your body can be in so much, your mind, everything. You you can be in such a shaking, quivering little puddle of flesh. You can be so much in agony that the capillaries, you know, the, the minimals, the very small veins, they begin to burst and work inside and come out of the sweat glands. And literally blood comes out on your arms and your face and all over your body. But it's only something that happens, it says, under the very, the most extreme stress that a human body can comprehend. And Jesus, before he gets to the cross, this is his point of consecration where he makes that final choice. But even yet, as you see, he was tempted. It says in other gospels, twice he said, Father, if it be possible... Let this, I don't want to do this. I mean, think about that. The one we call Lord and Savior said, I don't want to do this. I mean, he's aware. He's aware at least to a degree about what's about to take place. If it be possible, let this go pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done. And of course, that's one of the key truths. The Jesus Christ models that all of us are supposed to take close to our heart. We need to get to the place where, of course, you may not want to do something, but you make that choice, not my will. I'm going to do what you want me to do. But anyhow, so the, the very thought of this, like I said, the stress of it was so great that he began to sweat drops of blood. Amen. Uh, John, if you want, let's go ahead and start. Let me read this first. Well, let's put on this, uh, this PowerPoint, but let me read this first here from my notes. Every year, Dr. Colleen Sheer, Ph.D., Associate Professor in the Department of Biology and Chemistry at Azusa Christian University, presents a special lecture on the science of Christ's crucifixion. She details the physiological process of a typical crucified victim and what they underwent, and teaches their students to see Christ's death on the cross with new understanding. Uh, Please be aware that, as it says, the following is of a realistic and graphic nature. There's a couple of things. Anyhow, so if we can put the first slide up, whosoever, yeah. It is important to understand from the beginning that Jesus would have been in excellent physical condition. As a carpenter by trade, he participated in physical labor. In addition, he spent much of his ministry, of course, traveling on foot across the countryside. His stamina and strength were most likely very well developed. With that in mind, it is clear just how much he suffered. If this torture could break a man in such good shape, it must have been a horrific experience. After the Passover celebration, Jesus takes his disciples to Gethsemane to pray. During his anxious prayer about the events to come, Jesus sweats drops of blood. There's a rare medical condition called hemohydrosis during which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands break down. Blood released from the vessels mixes with the sweat, therefore the body sweats drops of blood. This condition results from mental anguish or high anxiety, a state Jesus expresses by praying, quote, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, Matthew 26:38. Hemohydrosis makes the skin tender So Jesus' physical condition Worsens slightly Traveling from Pilate to Herod and back again Jesus walks approximately Two and a half miles He has not slept He's been mocked and beaten I always think about the fact that in scripture It says that they, you know, they put a mask Over his head and slapped him And said prophesy Who hit you And then they take it off and a few of them spit in his face. And I always think to myself, oh, God, I wonder what happened to the guy that spit in the face of Jesus. I think about the heart of the father watching his son being going through all of that. But again, all of that's for us. Anyhow, in addition, his skin remains tender from the hemohydrosis. His physical condition worsens. Worsens. Then um, it speaks about our area now, it speaks of Luke 23. It said, Pilate orders Jesus to be flogged as required by Roman law before crucifixion. Traditionally, the accused stood naked and the flogging covered the air from the shoulders down to the upper legs. The whip, called the flagum, it's not on here, but anyhow, consisted of several strips of leather. In the middle of the strips were little metal balls that hit the skin, causing deep bruising. In addition, sheep bone was attached to the tips of each strip. Now, again, this is the part where Je- we're on that film. You know, Jesus was what, when you watch him. You know, the guy that played Jesus spoke about how they slipped and he actually got whipped for real once or twice, and that, and how much it devastated him just being hit once. And again, the Romans, there's so much to go. I had to, you know, we, myself, when I was in a Bible training center that I went to, we had to study this for a month, and they took you through all these different things where they brought in the whip and showed these kind of things, and one ancient one from Roman history, a real, called a phlegm that they used. And I mean, just a horrific thing. And these guys, the Romans made a science of it. I'm sure if you haven't heard that before, the Romans made a science out of crucifixion. It was something that they perfected to the point, again, that when they flogged somebody, they would flog them for 39 stripes. They could kill a man. It says in Josephus, the book of Josephus, the antiquity of the Jews, that the Roman soldiers that were trained to do this could kill a man with 40 stripes, but they knew how to do what they did with 39 stripes. And, of course, we know that with his stripes we are healed. 39 stripes. And, you know, I... Heard this, but then I had to ask some doctors. Long story short, do you know that there's only, in all of medicine, all diseases that are known to man fit in 39 categories, and he took 39 stripes for you and for me. But they're just not little little teen. <laughs> they're, they're 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 horrific. When the bone makes contact. There's another little one coming up here just a moment. Just one. There's a couple of sketches that are in there. When the bone makes contact with Jesus' skin, it digs into his muscles, tearing out chunks of flesh and exposing the bone beneath. The flogging leaves the skin on Jesus' back in long ribbons. You can go ahead and put the, Can you put that first picture up wherever it is? Forgive me. This might be out of sync, but this again just shows. You probably can't see it from a distance. But again, they always bound them to this thing called a stipes, this big post. The thing on the left is the actual picture of this kind of a whip they use with pieces of bone and what have you. Like I said, and the Romans had this way. They could, I mean, they did it perfectly. They actually sliced you, they filleted the back to the point that, again, great ribbons of flesh were laying open. And as it says, when you read, I could bring you far more gory truth from a lot of stuff that I've studied and have in my notes from when I was at school, but literally how they would lay, open, lay it open to the bone across the entire back to the point that, again, the muscles were torn, everything else. Now, this is, way, this is before crucifixion, but this is what they did before every crucifixion. Anyhow. Uh. When the bone makes contact with Jesus' skin, it digs into his muscles, tearing out chunks of flesh, exposing the bone beneath. The flogging leaves the skin on Jesus' back in long ribbons. By this point, he has lost a great volume of blood, which causes his blood pressure to fall and puts him into shock, puts a human body in shock. The human body attempts to remedy imbalances such as decreased blood volume. So Jesus' thirst in his body's natural response to his suffering... So that's what happened That's why the thirst came, John nineteen twenty. If he would have drank water, his blood volume would have increased. Roman soldiers then placed a crown of thorns on his head. I don't know if you've ever seen the true thorns that were there that they do it. You know, they're about an inch and a half to two inches long. They place, and all of that's part of the teaching. He took the curse, it says, upon his head. And that crown of thorns represents the curse of the law that was upon his head that he lifted up from the earth. And it speaks about when he was lifted up from the earth on that cross to be crucified. He lifted the curse off of the earth and threw it back to hell. Hit him. Roman soldiers place a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and a robe on his back, Matthew 27, 28, and 29. The robe helps the blood clot similar to putting a piece of tissue on a cut from shaving to prevent Jesus from sustaining more blood loss. As they hit Jesus in the head, Matthew 27, 30, the thorns from the crown push into the skin and he begins bleeding profusely. The thorns also cause damage to the nerve that supplies the face, causing They say the the nerves, have you ever heard of neuralgia? The nerves in the face, this is where some of the most intense pain a human being can experience is in the face right here. And all of that begins to pierce and and, and, uh, sever these nerves in him. The thorns also cause damage to the nerve that supplies the face, causing intense pain down his face and neck. As they mock him, the soldiers also belittle Jesus by spitting on him, Matthew 27, 30. And they rip the robe off Jesus' back and the bleeding starts afresh. Jesus' physical condition becomes critical due to severe blood loss without replacement. Jesus is undoubtedly in shock. As such, he is unable to carry the cross, and Simon the Cyrene executes the task, Matthew 27, 32. Then we see in Luke 23, from 27 to 49, this is where it begins to say crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians between 300 and 400 B.C. It is quite possibly the most painful death ever invented by humankind. The English English language derives the word excruciating from crucifixion. Acknowledging it as a form of slow, painful sufferings. Its punishment was reserved for slaves, for foreigners, for revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. Victims were nailed to a cross. However, Jesus's cross was probably not the Latin cross, but rather what's called a tau, a cross T. The vertical piece, which is called, you know, the pole in the ground, the stipes or the stipes, remains in the ground permanently. And the accused carries only the horizontal piece, which was called the patibulum, up the ground. The vertical okay. The accused carries only the horizontal piece, the patibulum, up the hill. Atop the patibulum lies a sign, which is called the titulus, which indicates that a formal trial occurred for a violation of the law. In Jesus' case, this reads, this is the king of the Jews. And of course, this was in three languages. Now again, we could go through the entire trial Everything about it was illegal. Some of you will remember that. You've been taught about it. They took him at night. That was against the law. The Sanhedrin, who was supposed to do it, they didn't even call half of the Sanhedrin. They only had a partial group of people. You know, Nicodemus had no idea what was coming, and then he winds up hearing from a servant, and he comes later on. Nicodemus is one of the friends of Christ. But everything about this was unlawful, totally, 100%. Unlawful. This is why Caiaphas, the high priest. I, I do like the film where you know when Jesus is crucified and the earthquake comes, and remember how the scripture says the in the high place in the where I mean in the holy place where the temple where the veil was that separated the temple from the holy of holies. Think about it. The you know remember it was six inches thick of woven silk and woven all manner, uh, I can't remember the rest of the, the, the material, but six inches thick and something like 16 foot across, and it rips in half from the top to the bottom. Hallelujah. Signifying that the way into the true Holy of Holies is now accessible to all mankind. Praise God. Somebody has to say praise God there. But the fact that the very altar and everything that was there split in half. And Caiaphas and all the other priests were around. They were there when that happened. And they saw everything that they venerated with the law and having literally broken in pieces in front of them while this man was dying. I mean, and again, crucifixion, the Romans, when they crucified somebody, it was meant to be a public event. On film, you see like 25, 35 people. In most cases, there were thousands of people round about a crucifixion. Because the Roman soldiers, they would actually, they would be told particularly by Pilate because Pilate was out of favor with Caesar, then in favor with Caesar. It's a whole long story. But he had to make sure that what he, you know, what was done was seen by many. So there were probably thousands of people there because, again, many, remember, there had been thousands of people come there for the Passover. And, of course, Jesus Christ became our Passover lamb being sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. The accused needed to be nailed to the patibulum while lying down. So Jesus is thrown to the ground, reopening his wounds, grinding in dirt and causing bleeding. They nailed his hands, it says, to the patibulum. But the Greek meaning of hands includes the wrist. It is more likely that the nails went through Jesus' wrists. If the nails were driven into the hand, the weight of the arms would cause the nail to rip through the soft flesh. Again, I'm only giving you some of this stuff that I've had to study and some of the stuff that's in my notes almost All the bodies that they've ever brought, you know, that they've ever looked at that were crucified, the nails were through here to the wrist. But anyhow, the next part says, therefore the upper body would not be held to the cross. If placed in the wrist, the bones in the lower portion of the hand, the bones in the lower portion of the hand support the weight of the arms, and the body remains nailed to the cross. The huge nail, which were seven to nine inches long, damages or severs the major nerve to the hand, the median nerve upon impact. This causes continuous agonizing pain of both Jesus' arms. Now, I don't know if it's still on this part or not, but what happens in every case, both shoulders are dislocated by the way they crucify them. I mean, again, I'm not going to say forgive me. I just, you need to study this and see that Jesus isn't some little felt figure that's slapped on a Sunday school board that falls off every once in a while you put it up. He was a man's man. And he, you know, he did this for me. And if you've actually seen, if you've ever had your life, as it were, saved by somebody else's intervention, you'll remember it. I mean, uh, hallelujah. The huge nail, seven to nine inches long, damages or severs the major nerve of the hand, the median upon impact. This causes continuous agonizing pain. If you could put up the next little slide that shows just a little picture, I think, again on it. That's, again, just a picture of the patibulum, and that's what they mean by the tau. That's the kind of the cross. And if you see that little section on the, on the thing that little bit sticking out on the center of the cross itself, the center of the stake, that was called the sedalia. It was like a little saddle. And the thing about it, if you could see the dimensions there, the cross of crucifixion was never, it was always six feet tall. And they bent the legs about 90 degrees, we'll read in a minute, and bent the legs and pushed them to the side and often they'd put that little thing called the sedalia or saddle, they'd make sure that it was just underneath the knees. Now what you have to understand about that. The legs are pulled up, but there's also the psychological horror of the fact that, to try, you know, the human body is tr- to try to relax some of the pain. There's the desire to put your feet on the ground and push up a little bit because your lungs are collapsing, you know, just to get the weight off of your arm, your shoulders that have been dislocated and what have you. But that sedalia disallows you. You can't do it. But you keep, you're aware that I. The ground's right there. If I could just touch the ground, I could maybe alleviate some of this pain. I mean, that's part of the psychological part of this issue. Anyhow, hallelujah, keep going. Once the victim is secured, the guard lifts the patibulum, places it on the stipase already in the ground. As it is lifted, Jesus' weight pulls down on the nailed wrist and his shoulders and elbows dislocate. That's Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. In this position, Jesus's arms stretched to a minimum of six inches longer than the original length. That's been proven again by bodies that they've dug up they were crucified. The arms lengthened by up to six inches by the the immense pressure of the weight of the body hanging the way they do it. It is highly likely that Jesus's feet were nailed to the tops, as often pictured, in this position with the knees flexed at approximately ninety degrees the weight of the body pushes down on the nails and the ankles support the weight. The nails would not rip through the soft tissue as would have occurred with the hands. Again, the nail would cause severe nerve damage. It severs the dorsal pedal artery of the foot and acute pain. Can you put up the next picture? The next one. Again, this is just showing the hands and Where they did it. I know this isn't pleasant, but it's okay. Like I said, we'll get to the good news. Amen? (laughs) Somebody still smiling at me. Anybody still here? They're going, I didn't come to church for Easter. I'm planning on eating ham and potatoes when I leave. I didn't really come for all this. I understand. Okay. Normally to breathe in, the diaphragm, the large muscle that separates the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity must move down. This enlarges the chest cavity and air automatically moves into the lungs, inhalation. To exhale, the diaphragm has to rise up, which compresses the air in the lungs and forces the air out. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on the diaphragm and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. Jesus must push up on his nailed feet, causing more pain just to exhale again. You can't breathe, basically. You're suffocating, and you have to try to push up to get it. But every move is, again, excruciating pain. Again, put up the next one, John. I know some of the words out of here, but put up the next little picture. Oh, you can't even see that. That's just the feet. Let's keep moving. In order to speak, because of what's happening in the lungs, air must pass over the vocal cords during exhalation. The Gospels note that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross, It is amazing that despite his pain, he pushes up to say, forgive them. The difficulty surrounding exhalation leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate whatever available oxygen. The decreased oxygen due to the difficulty in exhaling causes damage to the tissues and the capillaries being leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart, the pericardial effusion, and lungs, the pleuroeffusion. The collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocates the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, myocardial infraction, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely actually died of a heart attack. Now, after his death, when he finally makes that last statement, I was thinking about it again this morning, you know, into thy hands, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. And that last breath, like you and I, when we die, remember, your spirit will leave that body. That very last breath is actually you. And it leaves and goes to one or two places, heaven or hell. That's just the way it is. Amen? That's the truth. After his death on the cross, the soldiers, which is normally what they do, they would break the legs of the two criminals crucified alongside him, which caused suffocation. Death would then occur quicker. They always did this. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs, fulfilling John 19.33. Instead, the soldiers pierced his side, John 19.34, to assure that he was dead. In doing this, it is reported that blood and water came out, referring to the watery fluid surrounding the heart and lungs. I think you have the final little picture when I know that some of this is messed up. I've only got two more paragraphs. Everybody say, Praise God. Oh, well. I don't know. You can't really see it again, but that's just showing the diaphragm and what have you. I realize now that you can't see it good enough to receive what's on there. While these unpleasant facts depict the brutal murder, the depth of Christ's pain emphasizes the true extent of God's love for his creation. Teaching the physiology of Christ's crucifixion is a constant reminder of the magnificent demonstration of God's love for humanity that was expressed that day in Calvary. This lesson enables me to participate in communion, the remembrance of his sacrifice with a grateful heart. I'm struck every time with the stunning realization That as a flesh and blood human, Jesus felt every ounce of this execution. What greater love than this can a man have for his friends? And it finishes by saying Easter is a very special time of the year. The creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, came to the earth, died in our place for our sins, and rose from the dead. This is the main reason why Christianity is unique. No other religious No other religion claims that someone died for them and then rose from the dead as Jesus said he would do. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Everybody say, thank God that's over. Turn to Isaiah 52 real quickly. And I'll finish here in about five, ten minutes. We'll show this little six-minute video. And again, I know there's all manner of things on an Easter Sunday, hallelujah, that we can speak on. That I probably enjoy speaking on more. Like, I like to think about, I love being able to teach from Ephesians, and where it speaks about, you know, well, what happened when Jesus died? It was three days later. What happened in those three days? And of course, we read in Scripture that Jesus made his grave with the wicked that he went down to what then was, you know, paradise. Hell had three compartments, remember, that was called paradise, excuse me, Abraham's bosom or paradise, and a place called Sheol, which is the place of the wicked. And then another place called Tartarus that you don't need to worry about right now. Tartarus was for fallen angels. But the point is, Jesus is down there. He made his grave with the wicked. The statement on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me is incredibly profound because that's the only place in scripture where Jesus said, didn't say father, he said my God. And throughout all Christianity, it is said, wherever you're taught, that the phrase my God, my God is what they call the cry of a lost man. And so when Jesus, for that moment, he felt God had forsaken him. And that's when they say his spirit man, as it were, his spirit died. Now that opens up a lot of controversy for a lot of people. But it's a very, they say, Bible scholars talk about the verse in Isaiah 53 that it's incredibly powerfully important when it says that Jesus Christ made his deaths, plural, with the wicked in his grave. He not only died physically, But remember, death in the Bible, particularly normally, well, there's three different meanings. There's physical death, there's spiritual death, and there's the eternal death. When you're cast into the fire, when those who've never known confess Christ are cast into the lake of hellfire and damnation. But spiritual death means separation from the presence of God. And for the very first time in Jesus' life, he sensed Separation from that which had always held him close. And he dies, and it says he made his grave with the wicked. And this is what's exciting when you consider Easter and what God really did through Christ. The fact that the very, remember how the Bible says Jesus Christ is the first begotten from the dead? The very first man ever born twice, born again, is Jesus, and he was born again in the very pit of hell. Hallelujah. Remember, Ephesians, Philippians, back in the Psalms, it says that Satan, remember, thought he had triumphed. He thought he had triumphed. Psalm 22 talks about the bulls of Bashan compass me round about. It speaks of all demonic powers that began to rejoice as they were in dance, it says in Scripture, round about this man who was to be the Savior of all mankind because they thought they had won. And they're dancing round about and mocking and doing all this stuff in the very pit of hell. Again, see, people still don't understand how real the spirit realm is. Like, and I don't want to keep saying the same thing to you over and over again, those who attend the church here. But, you know, the spirit realm is where everything's real. That realm created this realm. Spirits are far more real than the flesh and blood you're sitting with. You're the body of a spirit. Your spirit's eternal, not your flesh. But all these demons are dancing round about. And the Bible says that God's spirit quickens Jesus... In the very pit of hell, the very first born again man was born again in the very pit of hell. So, people that say they're afraid to evangelize is too tough at the local McDonald's got it wrong. Hallelujah! If you can, if the first guy you know gets saved, gets saved in the very pit of hell by Satan himself, and him. but the Bible says, remember that God quickens Jesus; He makes Him alive, and it says He takes captivity captive. And what that means is, remember it says scripture says, he crosses over. There was a great gulf, remember, between Abraham's bosom or paradise and hell itself where all the, were, were you know, all the wicked were. And he crossed, he left hell itself and moved over into Abraham's bosom. And every single saint that had ever lived before that believed in God, David, Joshua, Moses, all of them, he led captivity captive. Hallelujah. And he raised them, he raised from the dead. He took all of them with them. Hallelujah for the very first moment, and he arises from the dead. So in those three days, that's where some of the greatest warfare took place, because he's down there for you, and for me, taking upon himself the very penalty of sinful man. God I don't know, see, I've got a vivid imagination. I don't think you can really it's tough to be a real Christian if you don't have a vivid imagination. You have to think on these things until it's not a story. Why do you think people today as young people are so fascinated with the supernatural? Because there's that vacuum, remember, in the heart of every human being. We, want, we know there's something else. We want to believe in something else. We want magic to be real. We want to see this, that, and the other. And that's because it is real. But because so many people in the body of Christ, like the song we sing, we don't actually keep releasing our faith for the supernatural. We don't keep a leash in our faith for God's Holy Spirit to manifest. So hell satisfies the longing of a human being by producing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films and games where they see the manifestation of supernatural beings. And it entices us and it fascinates us and we love to watch it because there's a hunger in every single one of you. For the supernatural, hallelujah! Isn't there? Yeah, there is. There really is. Angels are real, hallelujah. <laughs> Anyhow, but in Isaiah fifty-two, there's a there's a couple of there's just a scripture here. I'm starting Isaiah 52, uh, 13. speaking of Jesus, Isaiah is prophesying. Isaiah fifty-two thirteen, he says, "Behold, my servant shall deal wisely, and shall prosper." He shall be exalted and bestowed and shall stand very high. But listen to this next next verse. For many, speaking about his crucifixion now. For many, the servant of God became an object of horror. Many were astonished at him. Now this is the statement that we had to study for three weeks at Ramah. His face and his whole appearance were marred more than any man's, and his form beyond that of the sons of men, but just as many were astonished at him. Now, if language means anything, what that speaks to, and again, the movies don't do it justice, and that's why even in Mel Gibson's film comes closest to it, it says that Jesus's body became so, well, it was so horrifically beaten, so horrifically whipped, and then the excruciating pain of the crucifixion, everything was bloodied about him. But then you got to understand something. You have to remember, every disease and sickness known to mankind, it says, came upon his body in a three-hour period. The penalty for all sin came upon his body within that three to six hour period. His entire body, it says, became so emaciated that it no longer resembled the form of a human man. you got to let that sink in for a while. And it says, many were astonished. The word means freaked out. They were absolutely, they couldn't comprehend what they saw as this man's body not only showed the beating, the whipping, and the crucifixion, but something supernatural began to disfigure his body, which was the very weight of the sickness and the disease and the curse of the law and the sin of man came upon his body in three and a half hours. And they were astonished. Hallelujah. And, of course, verse 15 then says, So shall he startle and sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And you and I are going to see that, especially you youngsters. I'm praying I'm going to be alive because it's coming soon, but I guarantee you all these masters of the earth who think they have have intelligence or wisdom, they're going to have their mouths shut. So shall he sortles sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them shall they see, and that which they have not heard shall they consider and understand. And of course, the very next verse, the first verse of Isaiah fifty-three. Remember, there were no chapter headings in the original script. Says, "Who has believed this report?" But now I'm going to just stop there. I'm going to read, and this is what I'm going to finish with, and then we're going to show the video. I want to read. Um, the last few verses of Isaiah 52. Do you have the Message Bible, John? If you could put up, start from Isaiah 52:13 in the Message. I just got to find it in my notes here somewhere. We're going to read it from the Message, and then we're going to, and we're going to read the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. So just read this with me. This is from the Message. Easter. God says to Isaiah, "Just watch my servant blossom." Exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured, past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant, and a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. In other words, he didn't look like Robert Redford. Ladies, I'm sorry. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. This is talking about again he's prophesying about the crucifixion. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But the fact is it was our pain that he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought He brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing gone our own way and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice was miscarried and he was let off and did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with the rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sins so that he'd see life come from it. Life life and more life, and God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones, hallelujah, as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, Because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cross of all the black sheep. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, one day you'll say hallelujah for real. why would 11 men apostles die for a lie why would they die if it was a lie this is when in the history of the church on Easter is when the, the minister or the priest says he is risen and the people respond by saying what he is risen indeed hallelujah and he is risen Amen. Stand up with me, if you would. Hallelujah. That's my Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Not a story, not a tale devised by men, like Paul said, not some cleverly devised fable, but an absolute truth. Remember, he raised from the dead and was seen for 40 days, seen and talked to for over 40 days by some 500 people in Jerusalem. And again, Philo of Judea is one of the great historians that wrote about it. Again, and Joseph has some of the stuff. If you don't read much about it. Because secular humanity has done everything it could in the centuries past, to try to annihilate it from the records. But the truth of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is absolutely, positively provable. It happened. Hallelujah. We do not serve a story. It was my sins and yours that made that body disfigured and as bloody as it was. We need to be sober about that, but then according to his own words, he wants us to live in the likeness of his resurrection, not to live forever in the likeness of his crucifixion, but we need to reflect, that's why we have communion, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, and this is a good time for people that are unsaved, to say the least, hopefully to have a thought about making Jesus Christ just taking that simple step of saying, I choose to believe. It's not something that you figure out here. Remember, it's something that happens here where suddenly I believe this. And Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I can confess you before my Father. If you do not confess me before men, I cannot confess you before my Father. There's just something about a public profession But beyond that, you know, I think it's a good time for all of us, as it were, to consecrate ourselves afresh. Amen? To simply say, yes, again, I believe that you took on your body my sins, the penalty for my shortcomings, that the stripes you took were for my healing. Hallelujah. Your death for my life. Amen. So if you don't mind just if you feel like it raise a hand to heaven and just I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Just say this after me. Father, I make a choice today to think afresh about the price that Jesus paid for me. I believe those stripes were for me. I believe the disfigurement that came upon his body is a fact and was the evidence of my sin, my shame, my shortcomings coming upon him. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, you are the Lord of Lords. You are the king of kings and you are coming back again to bring us into full salvation. So I accept you as my king, my lord, my savior. I give you permission. Change my life. Take my life. Do anything you want with it. Quicken me Make me alive alive. unto God Almighty. Therefore, Jesus, I want to say thank you by living a life that's honorable, by living a life that's worthy of this incredible sacrifice. This is why we give you thanks. Why today we say from our heart, Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. How can we say thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live a good life for you. I'm going to be a good man or woman. In the name of Jesus, that my life, some way, somehow, might be a living epistle of your faithfulness your compassion and your goodness towards me thank you jesus thank you jesus amen and amen amen and amen hallelujah we believe you've really enjoyed this message For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday.